Hi, I'm Eric Storsund, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast. This episode will be the first out of two parts of an interview with my good friend, archaeologist Axel Klausen. Many Scandinavians consider the Viking Age to be the birth of Nordic identity, and they wouldn't be wrong, necessarily. It was a time where Norway, Sweden, and Denmark became more or less defined political and cultural entities. But the reality could actually be far more complicated as well. This might sound like a rant about the pitfalls of national romanticism, yet it is not. While the Viking Age does serve as the myth of origin in Scandinavia, it was actually a result of a far more ancient political development. Long before the Vikings, Scandinavian Germany was a hive of various Germanic cultures organized by tribal assemblies. Later, these tribes became centered around charismatic, high-born warlords and kleptocrats. Some of these warlords began to refer to themselves by the title of Kuningas. They were kings. The game-changer occurred in the 2nd century AD, when the emperor Marcus Aurelius led a series of campaigns against the people called the Marcomanni. Even though Rome won the conflict, it resulted in a massive Germanic power vacuum. Old systems were toppled, and new kingdoms were born, but these were very unstable. Their alliances fluctuated and changed, and some even teamed up with the Roman Empire to gain an upper hand against their rivals. Even though these states were impermanent and fragile units, they were the childhood years of a robust political ideology of monarchy that would change Europe forever, and eventually give birth to the modern nation-state. But this podcast is less about politics and more about the market of ideas, and the cultural symbolism of wine, gold, and lots and lots of sacrifices. To set the mood, I'm going to play a track by Imstammen, one of the most criminally overlooked bands to emerge from the Norwegian post-punk underground. A song of war and sacrifice, this is Alu Alu Lauka. Flere flokker sa de i alle fall da 
Aha, det er stolt et tønn som lokker fram den siste rest av trass Hvilken min står enda fast Slå ned det laget, antiseier, sa de i alle fall da Ta til lykke i et tag, våpen krenker, våpen høyt Musikposten høres fløyt I'm Axel. I'm um, well, prehistorian, archaeologist by education, and my speciality is the Roman Iron Age. Axel Klosen is a close friend of mine. We've worked together at uh, the Viking village on Avalsnes and Kame. So we met each other through our mutual interest then of living history. Eventually, we took an academic education where I focused mostly on the literary sources and the language, and he submerged himself in the dark pits of archaeology. <laughs> Definitely. Previously on the podcast, I've spoken about the Roman Empire and how that influenced the culture in what is today Scandinavia and Germany, and the different footprints that this left in Norse society. Today we're going to talk about the emergence of the Germanic kingdoms, aristocracy and warfare, the Marcomannic Wars, they play a large role in this. Definitely. The Marcomannic Wars, for those who don't know, was a series of wars that were fought between 166 until 180 AD. Yeah. And this was between uh, the Roman Empire under Marcus Aurelius, who was emperor at the time, against the Marcomanni, the Quadi, and also it involved the Vandals, Langobards, the Suebi, and other more or less obscure Germanic tribes. Yeah. Um, what we do see archaeologically, mind you, so this is mm. not including any literary sources at the time or uh, thereafter, but what we do see archaeologically is that it creates like a power vacuum after the wars. It's interesting because, of course, what happens with the Macromani kingdom, as it were, or chiefdom. We don't really know what we want to call it. Um, a proto-kingdom, perhaps? Perhaps, but also, I mean, the titles that they use is given by the Romans. Mm. Um, so if they would have used those titles themselves, addressed themselves as kings or what have you, it's difficult to say. But uh, we do, of course, see this um, like coalition, because it was more or less a coalition of different tribes, you know. Mm. On the uh, German side, yes. against the Romans. Yeah. Right? Um, but it's interesting when you think about uh, the aftermath of the wars, uh, because the Macromanni lost. And the Macromanni kings themselves were probably elected by the Romans, or at least there are literary sources. I mean, if we think about it, that do mention the Romans played a vital part in... Like in a banana the, republic. Kind of like. Uh, the, uh, the power vacuum that is created because of the losing Germanic side, if you will, does give opportunities for others 
to kind of go onto the playing field and show what they're worth. Uh, and that is when we see this sudden surge of Roman objects in Scandinavia, uh, especially in southern Scandinavia, mm. uh, in Denmark. So people were rising to power and importing uh, Roman objects? It depends on if... I wouldn't necessarily say importing, but it's kind of like, if you rub my back, I'll rub yours. Okay. Kind of deal, you know. Mm. Um, of course, this also happened before. Um, we do see it as early as uh, the first century AD uh, mm. during the uh, Augustinian or, or no, the uh, the campaigns of Augustus in the first early first century. What are we talking then? Like the Battle of, of uh, Teutoburg? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially during the aftermath of that particular oh, yes. battle. The Roman realization that. Germany is not an easy place to conquer. Yeah. Um, and we do see suddenly in uh, Scandinavia all kinds of Roman objects appearing, uh, especially alongside the coast of Denmark. And of course, we do also have a Roman account uh, that talks about a Roman emissary visiting the Kimbris. And the Kimbris were a tribe that is associated with southern Scandinavia, modern day Denmark, especially on Jutland. Uh, if, if we can use that tribal name or that name to whole of Jutland is debatable, but we do see it applied by the Romans to that part of Scandinavia. And we do have like high status burials in the first century that appear alongside a coast. So it could be like actual diplomatic envoys then dealing with these Germanic peoples on the other side of their enemy's borders, because that is also one of the m most important things to think about, think about is that um, the Germanic tribes, uh, proto-kingdoms that shared a border with the Roman Empire were always like the troublesome Germanics, yeah. but the other ones on the other side of these tr troublesome Germanics were potential allies. So we do have um, a grave uh, in Denmark, again this is early 1st century AD, uh, shortly after the Teutonburger uh, forest battle. Uh, where you have uh, Cassius Silius, uh, which was at the time a Upper uh, Rhine uh, general. Um, so that is, you know, the upper part uh, portion of, of the modern Rhine River. And there are vessels in this particular grave uh, in Hubi on uh, Lolland that contains uh, bowls, uh, etc. that has the name on it, his mm. name. Um, so it most likely is a gift or some form of uh, payment uh, or some form of uh, recognition to this particular Germanic leader to keep him on the Roman side. So uh, of course the Germanic tribes sharing the border with the Roman Empire during that time period uh, when Augustus was emperor uh, were troublesome to say the least, which is why there were also campaigns into uh, free Germania. Mm. Uh, at the time, uh, but the ones that are further away from this uh, wasn't necessarily enemies, they could be allies. And this is something we see in the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, and most likely in the migration period as well. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. So you have these Germanic tribes that are always bickering, yeah. locked in perhaps what we could call endemic warfare. Endemic warfare is small-scale warfare, often in tribal societies, mm. where warfare is maybe seasonal and it's more or less continuous. It could serve as a display of courage, but also to impress and uh, scare their enemies. 
This often involves dressing the part, you know, you're trying to impress your enemies, you have, your war gear is impressive. Mm, mm. And I guess if you come from the north attacking a southern tribe closer to the Roman Empire mm. and you're carrying Roman weapons, which must have been, you know, the top of technology at the mm, time. Definitely, yeah. It must have uh, been quite a sight that, mm. you know, invoke it, some fear in the enemy. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, this interaction between uh, the Germanic tribes of Persian kingdoms in Scandinavia and those sharing the border with the Roman Empire uh, in terms of warfare uh, is something you only see during the 2nd and 3rd century uh, and of course later on. Uh, so we don't really have that many like archaeological evidence for this kind of warfare playing out earlier. Yeah. Um, okay. Less so, anyways. Uh, of course, we can go all the way back to the Bronze Age, and we have like uh, battlefields like Tolensee and uh, what have you. Uh, so of course, mm. there would have been constant warfare, but we don't really have that much evidence of it. In the early second century, I guess uh, there's one particular uh, weapon sacrifice in Denmark that kind of kickstarts everything. Uh, but predominantly uh, weapon sacrifices, which is basically you take weapons from um, an army that is conquered and you sacrifice uh, their weapon and war gear um, uh, and objects, you know, personal objects, clothes, shoes, what have mm. you, and you sacrifice it to a or several gods uh, for the victory. Uh, and the Romans did the same thing. And this is probably what we do see in and playing out in southern Scandinavia during uh, the second, third, and fourth and fifth century uh, with these defeated armies, uh, which could indicate endemic warfare. Because we don't really see uh, armies but attacking to conquer. We see armies attacking to gain something. If it is a war booty, if it is just to show uh, muscles, to have an enemy can be, as the Romans obviously did, it was lucrative to have an enemy. Um, because it gives, it's much easier to control the masses, if you will, if you have an enemy, or and Romans had lots of enemies. It's helpful, especially if you want to advance in the political career as well, because through victories uh, you do get, especially for the emperors, mind you, you do get a much better uh, foothold uh, in the political system and the, and the geopolitical situation that played out in the Roman Empire was. Uh, mm. Sometimes even influenced by the emperors themselves because they wanted to uh, or want to be emperors, uh, especially in third century. Yeah, uh, to gain more power for themselves. Let's uh, go back a little to those weapon sacrifices. Yeah, they are really interesting when we see a great uh, number of Roman items in them, mm. Roman weapons and so forth. The thing is that uh, post Macromanic Wars. Um, there's an increasing number of these weapon sacrificing uh, sacrifices. They also help give uh, more data to establish where these were located, um, because it does show um, the uh, more martial aspect of a society, mm. uh, because graves alone won't necessarily give you much answers in terms of how they were fighting, why they were fighting, or have you, or nor can graves show you battlefields but these uh, weapon sacrifices do indicate where people were from because they're like regional variations and overall it is a very vital and important uh, occurrence that has helped shape Scandinavia as Scandinavian countries today really because it is where it all begins so these weapon sacrifices which do begin in the early second century 
Uh, but we do have them before this, uh, like uh, Jortspring, um, the ship, the boat. Yes, yeah. So which is pre-Roman. Uh, and yeah, it's like a war canoe that yeah. is uh, the only find of one of those ships that look like the petroglyphs yeah. of, uh, of Bronze Age, Bronze Age Scandinavia. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, it has the same characteristic shape. So they occur before this, but it's not that common. Uh, and then suddenly in the early third century, it just flourishes uh, in Scandinavia, in southern and I guess you call it eastern Scandinavia, southeastern Scandinavia. We know for a fact that already during the first and second century, Denmark was starting to develop from being a coalition of different tribal societies to becoming more and more centralized. And we do have like indications of uh, power centers on uh, Sealand in Denmark, which is uh, Himlingöje but also on Thunen, which is uh, Gudme, which do start to uh, become defined in the 2nd and 3rd century AD. And uh, we do see this in, in, in terms of uh, graves, like concentration of graves and dynasties perhaps being established. Himlingöje is the uh, first archaeologically proven central place, the power hub uh, in, in Germania uh, that we have evidence of. Uh, so, of course, we don't really know anything about the Macromanic, where they had their capital or their central place, their, their power hub, uh, nor do we have, like, the Franks or... So, so this is unique. It's interesting that the earliest central place uh, is far away yeah, it's, from, the, it's, from it's, the Roman it's, frontier. It's, it's like, it's not even shown on the map. It's like outside of the uh, area that we consider part of Europe uh, in this period, especially by like continental scholars, uh, people who study the uh, antiquity and uh, what have you. So, so Himlinge on, on, on Zealand is unique mm. in that aspect. So by the Macromanic Wars, um, these power centers already existed. So their part in the Macromanic Wars is debatable. We don't really know which side they supported, but given the increasing numbers of Roman items in the very late part of the second century and into the third century, will perhaps indicate that they were supporting the Romans and not necessarily the other Germanic tribes. Uh, which goes to show that because you spoke the same language, because you were part of the same culture, they necessarily rooted for the same side that you were born on. Many people like to romanticize and imagine the uh, Germanic tribes as being united, more or less, yeah. uh, against uh, a common foreign uh, megaforce. But that's mm. not quite how it is. Right? No, no. no. Uh, we can also see that there were already issues, like internal issues, internal strifes. Mm. Um, because uh, Armenius, which is, of course, known as being the... Uh, a Germanic leader uh, that fooled the Romans. Yeah, the uh, unifier of the Germanic peoples against the common foe. Uh, but we do see that his role was vital, but um, he had to depend on other people as well, you know, other Germanic leaders. And especially one, because this is only proven through Roman accounts, mind you, mm. Marobudus, uh, which is the king of the Suebi and then later became the king of the uh, Macromanes in that period of time. So that's to say the beginning of the first century. And he had, and, they, and both of them had issues with each other. Uh, mm. They weren't on like friendly terms or anything. If anything, they were enemies, uh, but they had to kind of like uh, just keep a face, you know, um, as far as the Roman accounts go. Um, so that goes to show that even within the ranks of 
a unifying army. There were uh, internal strife uh, amongst the Germanic peoples. Of course, uh, this is probably something that we can see later on as well, but uh, we don't really know how mm. to see it, of course, because we don't have the Roman accounts. So, uh, so there's lots of uh, like cloak and dagger stuff going on, lots of intrigue. Uh, and and conflicts uh, on the other side of of, uh, of the conflict. We were talking about endemic warfare yeah. previously, and uh, sometimes you would, at least for the Nordic region, you know, you have fighting against people who are of the same more or less ethnic makeup as yeah. yourself, common ethnicity and culture mm. together, yeah. but not nonetheless, the differences are large enough. This multicultural warfare thing only makes sense on a really large scale. Yeah. If you live in a small-scale society, you will find enemies among your own, right? You know, definitely, so, definitely. Yeah. And we see that over and over, especially within, like, Free Germania, if you will, Barbaricum. So even though you did share, perhaps, even common ancestry with some of these people, you might be someone's uh, cousin or whatever, you might still be enemies. Uh, absolutely, and you see this in the uh, heroic poetry as well. You have uh, Hildebrandslied. It tells the, the tragic story of uh, son battling his father in opposing armies. But anyway, you know, the point is that the cultures at the time were very pragmatic when it came to warfare and their allegiances as well. Mm. Yeah, let's return back to the subject of the emergence of, uh, of individual realms and perhaps these proto-kingdoms that we talked mm. about. And how does this uh, develop uh, long-term, if you will? Uh, well, I mean, if we just begin with the 3rd century, because that's kind of like a good base uh, to, to move onwards. Uh, so the, during the 3rd century, uh, we do see that the Roman influence heavily influences uh, southern Scandinavia, but also the rest of Scandinavia. And this is where my own research comes into play, uh, because in my theses I looked at one princely burial on the west coast of Norway uh, at an island called Karmøy. Uh, at a place called Avalsnes. And this princely burial uh, represents something extremely unique. And by princely burial, I don't mean he was a prince uh, in the sense of a monarchy, but he had a, a social yes. role to play, which was that akin to perhaps a leader or a king or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're thinking about kind of changing the name from a prince to a king. Yeah, it sounds like Cinderella when you say prince. <laughs> it, it does, yeah. it does. It's That's just how the, re like, uh, the terminologies uh, researchers used back in the day, and we just have to use them nowadays. Um, but it's um, most likely a proto-king uh, that had his uh, base on the west coast of Norway, on this island, um, and he had ties with the dynasty on uh, Zealand at Himlingeja. Um, of course, it's very difficult to say he did, because we, we can't ask the guy, you know, he's yeah. dead. Uh, he we was... would probably like the title proto-king, though. But then again, maybe <laughs> um, not, because these guys probably want to lean on some sort of tradition, you know, yeah. to establish themselves and say that yeah. this is why I have the right to rule. As later Divine lineage and things mm, like that, divine mm. king. That's another podcast, probably, but <laughs> the sacred king in Scandinavia. Um, but this is the first definite uh, indication of what is a king in Norway, I would say, anyways. I mean, someone might debate and say that it's probably not, but that's something we can 
you know, discuss, and that's something that people do discuss, scholars do discuss currently. Yeah, because what is um, there? There's like uh, some sort of archaeological spooky action at a distance going on, right? You see other places in the vicinity mm. being affected suddenly, yeah. and it isn't apparent why until you start connecting the dots, dots and you yeah. see that it's surrounded around this powerful dynasty, and this, yeah. of course, princely burial being Ex- you know, exactly. the smoking gun. Mm, exactly. Um, but this this individual, uh, he did have lots and lots and lots of influence. Um, and the grave goods goes to show that he was, by any definition, a king, I would say. And he was buried, especially worth mentioning, a gold neck ring, which weighs around 590 grams of pure gold. Uh, Roman gold. Yeah, because half a kilo of gold around his yeah, neck. Yeah, yeah. So nearly 600 grams of Roman gold. And it's 24 carats, so it's pure as you get it. Uh, His neck ring does symbolize his right to rule. That is like having a crown on your head in that period. Mm. Um, Because we do also have iconography with uh, like leaders holding rings in their hands, uh, which does symbolize the right to rule. so this symbolism started, at least in Scandinavia, during this time period. And the ring symbolism, of course, is, is far older than this. Mm, but it continues uh, on so long, yeah, like yeah, a yeah, red yeah. line through exactly. our new Scandinavia. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but also throughout Europe. I mean, this is a symbolism that we do see elsewhere. It's like mm. uh, the laurel crest, you know, uh, the Roman emperors used, uh, which is, again, indicative of the high status uh, the person had. Mm. But uh, the other items we do find in, in the burial uh, is uh, Roman um, utensils, a Roman uh, sieve, Roman ladle. Uh, so we like drinking. Drinking vessels. Vessels, yeah. yeah. Vessels to contain alcoholic beverages. That would originally be produced to, to serve wine in. Yeah, in originally in, in in Roman context, but yeah. <laughs> uh, what they did serve in Scandinavia at the time is debatable. <laughs> Probably not wine, but it could have been important wine, but we don't really have any evidence for This is a nice digression because uh, Axel was courteous enough to bring a bottle of his own Roman-inspired spiced wine in a in fitting container mm-hmm. to, to drink it from too. So, so we've uh, got a little buzz going on here. Uh, conditum par- paradoxum. Uh, which is like uh, Roman spiced wine. So the Romans didn't drink wine straight out of a bottle. Um, they they would have mixed it. Uh, but then we're still barbarians, I mean, even though we drink the Roman way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so throughout the third century, um, we do have other like princely burials, such as this this one from uh, from Western Norway, uh, and they just kind of increase in numbers. Um, throughout the third century, um, and especially in southern Scandinavia, they, they multiply. They, we find them elsewhere in um, in, in Denmark, uh, not just on these two areas uh, that I already mentioned. Uh, so it is something that happens that other people try to replicate um, this new uh, hi- uh, like this new monarchy, if you want, a proto kingdom mm. that appears in these two different locations. Uh, but of course, these uh, centers they were dependent on their Roman connections. Um, and what happens is that during the third century, which is an extremely unstable period in Roman history, um, it's when you have the soldier emperors 
the wannabe emperors uh, <laughs> they use martial power to gain actual political power and influence and it's like one emperor kills the other you know and just keeps going and by the middle parts uh, something quite dramatic happens uh, you get the um, well, the outlines of what would later be the Gallic Empire, which is like this, how should I call it, rogue empire within the empire that kind of breaks out. But it's still part of the empire, mind you, but it has its own uh, like system and its own emperor. Um, and that is like in the middle part of the third and the later half of the third, third century. And... Um, this breakage from like the union of uh, the bosom of Rome um, marks a completely different change in Scandinavia um, because uh, what we do see is that the Romans for some reason favor um, Germanic tribes uh, that are uh, in the Elbe area mm. of uh, east of the Rhine so no longer in southern Scandinavia but just further east of the Rhine area um, which is in um, the Hasleben Leuna group, as we call it, uh, with one princely burial being that of Gomon, which is extremely rich grave as well, and has a lot of the same grave goods as we do find in the uh, princely burial at uh, Avasnes, especially the, the neck ring symbolism is there again, uh, with a uh, 500 or so grams heavy gold neck ring. Uh, but we also have the Roman. Uh, drinking vessels, but also we do see a lot of Germanic stuff, which we do also have in the one from Abasnes on the west coast of Norway, where we do have like this extremely luxurious sword that was put in the grave with um, silver gilt plates on, on the scabbard, decorate the entire surface of the scabbard. It's like the most luxurious late Roman scabbard that I know of, like a gold scabbard, you know, <laughs> with uh, organic. Uh, sword hilt with silver rings, uh, which we're currently having reconstructed now for the uh, museum that is adjacent to <laughs> to this burial mound mm. uh, at the same site, which I'm in charge of. Um, Amazing project. It is. It is. It's very and it's very like like in if if you're a Germanic chieftain, you would appreciate the quality, the, the workmanship that was gonna gone into it. It's on the same way as as the original one. Uh, so by the middle part of the um, third century. In southern Scandinavia, the um, power centers, some of them disappear and then get a few new ones. The uh, political situation in southern Scandinavia changes uh, during the 3rd and into the 4th century, where it shifts from like the Western Roman Empire and the provinces along the Rhine to the Danube region uh, of the uh, eastern half of the Roman Empire. So um, something plays out and it's most likely the conflict uh, with the uh, Gallic Empire uh, in uh, northern France and you know, Belgium and that part, um, and uh, this this again turns and changes uh, the political situation in Scandinavia mm. uh, during the late third and into the fourth, and of course into the fifth century, the migration period, and the different kinds of problems this brings to the table is that. Um, by changing from the western half to the eastern half, there are uh, less physical evidence in Denmark of graves. And we also see that the graves that we have in Denmark are fewer in number than they were before. And in the late part of the 4th century and into the 5th century, there are basically no graves in Denmark mm. for some reason. But what we do have 
of hordes. Lots and lots and lots of gold hordes. So we don't have the rich graves where mm. we do have people who are burn, uh, buried in uh, in um, uh, like their their beautiful like clothes and they're like extremely wealthy and um, extremely extravagant burial goods. Mm. Uh, what we do instead have is their hoard finds. What does that mean? What does Why, that where mean? Why are they breaking all this stuff? <laughs> it it's it's difficult for us to say. Uh, it could indicate quite an unstable period, but uh, that's not necessarily true because the graves themselves could indicate there being a political conflict going on. So the reason you build burial mounds is to show others you have the right to claim this land, and we think that a lot of these farms back in the day in the Roman Iron Age and before that uh, had uh, burial mounds within the farm area so that the people who lived there could claim the farm for themselves so that no one else could just like because they didn't really have uh, contracts or anything like physical as no, we do right, nowadays yeah. so you had to do it some way or another you gotta have monuments you gotta witness exactly exactly big yeah. ceremonies yeah yeah and, and the monuments are permanent but all of this just stops in southern Scandinavia uh, it keeps going on in Sweden and in Norway, mm. uh, mind you, throughout the Iron Age, but in, in Denmark it just stops. And of course when you get to the later half of the Iron Age, like in the Merovingian period and the Viking Age, things are quite different. But in mm. the Roman Iron Age, the later part of the late Roman Iron Age and in the migration period, we don't really have burials in Denmark, interestingly enough. <laughs> so, so there are of course a few, but they're not wealthy or rich. The uh, gold hordes uh, probably indicate either like uh, a way of preserving the metal in lieu of a bank or it could be a votive deposition to uh, sacrifice it to a or a DT or number of DTs. Uh, each and every hoard is different. But although this gold is probably from the eastern half of the Roman Empire because we do have gold coins from all over the empire but where the tribute itself came from is probably uh, the eastern half, at least in the 4th century. And the graves that we do have from this period as well, as I said, from the Danube area, are probably associated with the um, the Goths, if you will, in the Black Sea area. The uh, Chesnikov culture, as the archaeologist calls it. We have osteological examinations of uh, one of the burial fields uh, on uh, Funen. Osteological remains indicate that a lot of these people were actually from southeastern Europe. They yeah. were born in that area. So we have so probably migrations going on. Yes, 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 yes. While the Viking Age is um, considered the founding story of at least Norway, you know, mm. but this foundation is being laid already then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in southern Scandinavia, uh, but it also does uh, goes to show that it influences other parts of Scandinavia as well. Mm. Um, but the problem with these early kingdoms is that they're not necessarily permanent uh, because they're dependent on a figurehead or a dynasty. Mm. And if that person dies or a dynasty is basically wiped out, you know. Yeah, uh, so these then, political areas are malleable. Yeah, uh, yeah. very much so. Um, and that's why we see the territories changing and shifting. And there's uh, one researcher in Norway called Håkon Reyesen, which is... Uh, uh, and uh, he's written and published just recently his uh, dissertation on uh, the West Norwegian power centers. 
um, and during this period of time in the Roman Iron Age and into the migration period. And he does see a clear uh, pattern uh, between the centers and the one at Avasnes. And um, in some Scandinavia as well, we do have um, a clear indication of rings being used to symbolize your, part, your place in the hierarchy, uh, where you have the leaders who wear like gold arm rings or neck rings. Mm. Uh, and then you have uh, the next uh, like layer, if you will, uh, which is the people who wear gold finger rings, which is called serpent head rings. Um, though it's actually more uh, raven heads or bird heads. It's like an antiquarian term for it. And of course, the bird has and serves a big role yeah, in. Uh, it, it serves uh, an important role in uh, in ruler ideology and symbolism in exactly. uh, Iron Age Scandinavia. And we do see that the next layer has Roman imports, but they don't have any gold objects. And then you have the very last layer, which is the people who are buried uh, with simple stuff like uh, a ceramic pot or uh, earthenware vessel or something. Not, not anything fancy, or just an iron knife, which is like the farmer class, mm. if you will. And then you have all the ones that weren't buried. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is like... The majority. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that is very interesting about this is uh, funny when we talk about the ring symbolism and mm. ruler ideology, because this is so strong in Scandinavian culture and survives well into the Viking Age. Now, sometimes when we discuss skaldic poetry, which is courtly poetry, basically like military courtly poetry of the Viking era. Mm. Um, many scholars are, you know, like to discuss the different antiquarian themes that are there because it's clearly uh, seniority. The idea of tradition is very strong within uh, ruler ideology yeah. at the time, mm. and so we think that they sometimes, in the poetic language, they appeal to. Uh, the the legendary past by using antiquated terminology and also yeah. using what they can uh, from what they knew about it in a kind of like a crude legendary historiography what they knew about yeah. this so they will mm. reference really like ancient stuff We've talked about this before in uh, in a previous podcast where you at least in the heroic poetry they are even refer to events from the migration era yeah, yeah definitely but uh, in scholic poetry one of the one of the easiest ways uh, and probably most effective ways of flattering uh, a king or like appealing to a king because skaldic poetry was often made on commission or it was presented to military leader and one of the ways of appealing to them is uh, we call it the generous man motif where you say that you never go hungry or thirsty when you visit this uh, great war leader it occurs also in other Germanic poetic traditions mm -hmm. but there's this idea of the ring breaker, you know, or the one who spreads gold, and it has connotations not only of being a man who distributes his wealth, because being rich is only ethical in this elite society if it is also shared in your social environment. Mm. But the ring breaker also has a connotation of destruction, right? Somebody who can obliterate opposing dynasties and take their gold. Mm, and then rip exactly. it apart and distribute it in the creation of new alliances. And this continues on into the Viking Age, but it's probably a very old motif. It's something we can clearly see in the Roman Iron Age, mm. definitely. I would say, without a doubt. Uh, and this continues, of course, into the migration period in the 5th uh, and into the early 6th century. Um, and, of course, I mean, when it comes to the gold rings as a symbol of hierarchy, um, 
so these uh, like um, gold rings that I just talked about, uh, the serpent head gold rings, they're uh, from the third uh, century. Uh, but that just disappears. The symbolism disappears in the fourth century. Mm. Um, and in the fourth century, we do see a new symbolism arising, um, which is a new type of gold rings associated with the elites. And this changes again in the 5th century, and which changes again in the 6th century. So we do see the elites renewing uh, their fashions all the time. Mm. Um, and of course in the Viking Age the uh, jewellery fashion was quite different from that of the Roman Iron Age. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the symbolism, the part of the symbolism was probably there. Um, especially as you already mentioned uh, with the uh, gift giving of gold. And um, these gold hoards that I talked about a bit earlier but also silver hoards. So we often just talk about gold, but there's also silver hoards, which mm. is like hack silver, uh, basically just silver objects, Roman silver objects, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also uh, recycled uh, buckles and brooches and what have you that are made in Scandinavia, but from Roman silver mm. uh, being recycled. And um, the gold itself, which is so vital, so important for any king, any kingship, any kingdom in order to survive, in order to, to, to exist, uh, has uh, an origin outside of the era we're talking about. Mm. Uh, because there's no gold mines, there's no gold quarried, there's no gold sieved or anything, you know, uh, on, on the river, riverbeds. They're all from another place. Uh, and it's interesting when you think about how that gold actually found its way into Scandinavia mm. uh, during this period of time. And what we do see is like we have three alternatives. That goes for most of the Roman objects that find its way into Scandinavia. Either it's through trade, or it's uh, war booty, or it's the last one, which is basically diplomatic gifts. And um, out of the three different uh, alternatives, the last one is probably the most likely one. Mm. Uh, because if it was trading, we would expect to find a lot more Roman objects in Scandinavia, but we don't. There's, there's basically only one thing we do find. It's um, glass vessels, glass beads, what have you, um, and Roman vessels, uh, metal vessels. Uh, we don't really have that many uh, ceramic vessels. So, for instance, the terra sigillata, which is like the top-class Roman pottery of the late Roman period is basically not valued at all in Scandinavia because mm. it's not metal. Yes. You know, it's it's pottery. They didn't have the glaze that we do have in the Middle Ages, mm. but it's like really nice pottery. Um, and it was used by the aristocrats. But the aristocrats in Scandinavia or in the Babericum, they didn't want it. <laughs> <laughs> they're metalheads. Yeah, they're metalheads, <laughs> definitely. Uh, and we do have a Roman account uh, in the late 3rd century, I think it's around 270 that talk about uh, renewing an alliance between the um, Isiagis, the tribe, Isiagi tribe, and the uh, the Roman Empire. I can't remember if it was one Roman emperor or if it was like a provincial a governor or something, uh, but they had to renew an alliance with these people. Um, and they, in, 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 the, uh, in the source, they talk about the um, Germani, as they just call them, you know, because mm. why call them by the tribal name, the, the, the Germani. They uh, were referencing to an earlier alliance where they paid them in metal, in gold and silver. Uh, and they don't talk about pottery, they don't talk about textiles, it's gold and silver. And um, we do see uh, 
in these hordes in the fourth century, but also we do have earlier hordes, so it's not just exclusive to this uh, century and also the fifth century, mind you. Um, but we do we we do have like uh, silver uh, plates, utensils, pots, bowls, vessels in general that have been cut and bent and just you no know, longer appreciated for their original value, you know, as Roman like drinking vessels or what have you. They're now seen as metal value. So the original function is no longer there. They've been recycled and they're going to be made into something new, which is more appropriate for the Germanic taste uh, of, uh, of Barbaricum, be it Scandinavia, mm-hmm. be it on the other side of the Rhine. And the metal is the essential part of the uh, Germanic uh, aristocracy. So the Romans are there buttering up Germanic peoples. But also kings, not just chiefs. These local leaders. Yeah. Probably also giving them ideas. For better or worse. So throughout the uh, 4th and 5th century things changes uh, both in Scandinavia and on the continent Mm. and uh, you know old kingdoms disappear, new ones appear. and uh, in the late 4th century, uh, when the Huns start to migrate westwards, uh, we do see a new geopolitical power, so to speak, arise in Europe, uh, which changes the map completely. Skål! Skål! Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. If you want to hear Axel's special recipe for Roman spiced wine, you should consider becoming a Brute Norse patron over at BruteNorse.com. Patronage allows me to save up for better equipment and possibly also better rewards for my supporters in the future. I know it's simple, but a lot of my time goes into creating this content, and I would like nothing more than to develop the concept. In the meantime, my Patreon page contains exclusive outtakes, articles, and you can also become more engaged in my content creation. You also get to hear the podcast before anybody else. Coming up next is part two of my interview with Axel, where we'll be talking more about the ethnic identity of the Germanic tribes and how Germanic kingdoms found innovation in the ruins of the empire. Until next time, this is Eirik Storson. Hail Oxel. Be wholesome and content.